most of the Japanese companies understand that success comes in not competing directly with the Swiss, but competing on the fringes. Do what they're not doing or find another way. The reality is that the Japanese have always been very comfortable speaking directly to consumers, whereas the luxury brands in Europe feel that luxury speaks indirectly to consumers. And it's sort of this different kind of snobbiness towards media. So the idea that you're going to go to where people are buying watches makes total sense for, for, you know, uh, for a Casio, for a citizen. Well, I recorded this intro on Wednesday, but the show wasn't recorded till Thursday. So my guess is that on this week's show, we hear about Ariel's visit to the Wind Up Watch Fair. And based on a lot of averages of the previous 68 shows, we'll hear some chat about Titanium, Rolex, Ariel refusing to nominate any preferences. And there has to be at least a 50-50 chance of playing Guess the Price of the Seiko. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. Your ears do not deceive you, it is probably Friday that you're listening to this. That's just because of stuff and things which meant that we couldn't record on Tuesday, so we are recording on Thursday, which means this is coming to you live on Friday. So hopefully you'll forgive us for the extra day. But we are joined now by a much more awake Ariel Adams, who's been at Wind Up Watch Fair and has now travelled back, not a long distance. How long does it take you to travel from there back to home, Ariel? Uh, well, the flight is only about 45 minutes. So so no time for uh, for in-flight movies and the blog to watch, watches, watches? No. <laughs> and David, you're with us this morning. How are you, sir? Good, very well, thank you. Good. Are you full of enthusiasm in the world of watches this morning, David? Uh, at times I do, yes. and david what has been attracting your attention this week anything in particular yeah a friend of mine showed me this date just 41 that was decorated aftermarket of course with 1760 diamonds in set into the steel case and bracelet and and it had the rainbow bezel not very well done in terms of the color transition but it's a hysterical watch it feels good because it's a modern day just. It's very comfortable, but it's also blinding. Uh, and I like that contrast very much. Great stuff. Uh, Ariel, tell us about what you were up to in the last week. Because you've actually been all over the internet. You've been on Instagram. I've seen people posting photos of you from the event. Tell us what you got up to. Yeah, so I went up north to spend some time with Showpard at an event known as the California Mille, which is an annual event sort of spun off from the Italian Mille Miglia. And it's really sort of a high-end a car collector event where people bring their pre- 1957 and, and previous sports cars, which are beautiful but very fragile, <laughs> and they drive them for a thousand miles. And that beats them up (laughs) so then they have to repair them and they spend a lot of time talking about driving and breaking their cars um (laughs) and watches is obviously a a big part of their passions a lot of them uh like watches so it was great to spend some time with those uh those individuals and show part then i made my way to san francisco where i happened to be there for wind up and i was um really delighted to be there i'd never actually been to a wind up and the event took place, you know, really just a couple um, of minutes from where I started a blog to watch back in 2007 when I lived in San Francisco. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it would have been so great if there was an event like this at the time I was living there. You know, I really believe I was part of a a movement that led to this. And you asked an interesting question, you know, sort of prior to us recording the show about, you know, enthusiast led shows. And it coincides with something I was thinking about when I was there, 
And that's essentially that without the enthusiasts, none of this would happen. The brands themselves, even if they should have rallied their forces together and cooperated to do an event like this, simply could never get around to it. It had to be the, the audience that did it. And it really reminded me how in America, like probably most other countries, those nations have to be responsible for the development of their own watch market. The the Europeans and the Swiss and even the Japanese are not really going to be involved in market building in the way that, that can only be done locally. So it was great to see it happened. I think that it's it's a very strong thing. There's a lot of people there, a lot of brands there. Of course, these things can always be improved and added to and supplemented. But I think it shows that there's really a fervor and has to you know be homegrown. So it's great that you know a, a company in America that understands the community could do that. I think that, you know, Warren and Wound has really turned into a store and the sort of events company. That's really where a lot of their focus is leading, which is great. You know, we, we, we are media and continue to be media and, and an opinion and in tandem with those events. I think that it makes a lot of sense. So I was enthused there. Um, I thought it was really good. I was honored to be asked to speak there. And yeah, I, uh, I'll probably be at another one of those events and look forward to seeing various audience members there as well. Great stuff. And so was your feeling that it was worthwhile for all of these brands? I often wonder the extent to which the brands are going there to spread their wings and the market and present their wares to the audience versus some brands that are there because they're one or two man bands or women bands and they themselves are enthusiasts. So they actually just enjoy going to places whereby they can be enthusiasts. They're almost like volunteer watch brands you know you know how you you get the professional car guy who take his shiny mercedes gullwing mercedes along to well actually where else should just be in the the, the mealy mega you know there's the professionals that will do it and then there's the guys who've bought the car or in this case operate the watch brand and it's just their kind of way of working in the sector of meeting the people and so the brands are kind of divided into two those likes of christopher ward who were there who are big now multinational companies and then the one or two person mom and pop if you like watch brands that uh, just enjoy it, it it pays their way to tour the world and meet lots of people and they do it by selling the occasional watch well there's an there's a market for both those types of brands at the show i think that wind up it's really about strength at a price point it's doesn't really matter, you know, what type of company produces something at that price point. Uh, you know, once you get into the three, four, five thousand dollar range, I think you sort of price yourself out of the uh, typical purchasing comfort zone of your average wind-up attendee. At least that's sort of what what I've heard and a little bit what I saw. <clears throat> I know that Norcane was there, for example, and they they, they really pushed the limits there. They have some stuff within that, but of course they have five, six thousand uh, dollar watches um, and up for sure. And I think that it's important to say that there's a, you know, it's really about people being comfortable at that segment. For $2,000, there's an awful lot of variety there. You could get, you know, a high-end uh, Casio watch. You could get a very small production, you know, indie uh, whatever watch. You could get sort of a, a look-alike you know, dive watch that's well-made but may not be super original. I mean, there's just so much um, variety there from art to conservatism that you can get. So I really think that that's what it's about. There are, of course, other audiences that spend more on watches, sometimes much more, sometimes less. And so that's where I think the sweet spot is. It's comfort around a certain uh, uh, price category uh, more than anything else. And so was there anything in particular that caught your attention at the show in terms of brands you hadn't seen before 
or watches from brands you were familiar with that uh, took you by surprise? Well, you have to remember that for a lot of these watch brands, this is maybe the only opportunity that consumers will be able to reliably see their products, right? Like outside of maybe accidentally seeing it on a buddy or something like that, you'll see these watches online. So the the sheer fact of being able to go there is sort of like, hey, you've been seeing all these watches on the internet. Now you get to see it here. Uh, the, the showcasing aspect, I think, is very valuable and was interesting for me. There was a lot of watches there that had been featured on a blog to watch, whether through editorial um, or, you know, uh, as, as advertising and sponsored content. And it was an opportunity for me to check it out. And a lot of it was like, wow, this is really nice. I'm so glad this was on the site. Um, and there's a couple of other brands there. So I'd say I, I didn't discover too many new things there, but it was a great opportunity to see things in person. And I think for everyone who goes there, that's really the value. So when you asked about, is it worth it for the brands? They have to ask themselves, where else are people going to see my, see my stuff? And if the answer is, this is a good opportunity, then I think it makes sense for them to be at an event like this. Now, David, did you notice that I asked Ariel a question there about a particular watch that he liked and he managed to answer the question without naming a single watch? Could it be that Aria, you, you care more about industry things now than watches? <laughs> oh, 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 oh dear. No, I, it's, a, it's a valid point. I spent a lot of time there, you know, looking at watches while industry matters were thrust in my face. So everybody wanted me to talk about industry thing. And I really wanted to go around looking at watches a little bit. There, there were definitely certain things that, that got me excited. Uh -huh. Um Go on, name one. Name, name something that got you excited. An actual watch. <laughs> well, you know what was fun actually. I'm in the I'm in the high end courts now, right? Uh -huh. So I was yeah, yeah. I was with uh, Bradley from Autodromo, right? And I I forget the name of the series, but he has this high end you know, digital watch that has like a sapphire crystal, and there's a cool Cerakote case, and it's you know it 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 sort of for me is this ideal nostalgic thing because I grew up with these you know kind of blocky square digital watches in the 80s I would I love them at the time and you know here's sort of this modern take on it and I'm I'm glad that we're seeing more of this because I'm so sick of like modern take on the vintage 1960s 1950s 1970s dive watch modern take on it modern take and I'm like I didn't grow up with that stuff I don't really care about the modern take and I can agree it's beautiful now I get to see like weird remakes of stuff I grew up with. And I, I guess that means I'm getting older, but it means the industry is progressing to new eras. So those are the types of things I, I, I'm getting excited about cool. right now. So that would have been the Group C from Autodromo. Uh, That's that right. You saw the there, there's a lot of cool watches there. I mean, it. look, again, you had established brands, uh, as you said, uh, Christopher Ward, um, Casio, Oris is there. Um, the entire Citizen group, a Citizen and Bulova and Accutron, Alpina, Frederic Constant, and a lot of like just very, very small ones sort of all thrown around in kind of a fun space. You know, I think I think it was it's it's definitely worth it. I was I was happy to be there. It was a you know, three day event. Do you need to go for all three days of a consumer? No. But um, I think uh, I think they're doing a good job. Look, it's it's a lot more comfortable than half the uh, the things the brands themselves put on. Does it say something about the Japanese watch industry that they seem to have really embraced this? concept while they're absent in large part from the the watch shows in switzerland look i think that while there is some exceptions over at seiko most of the japanese companies understand that success comes in not competing directly with the swiss but competing on the fringes like don't you know do what they're not doing or find another way the reality is that the Japanese have always been very comfortable speaking directly to consumers, whereas the luxury brands in Europe feel that 
luxury speaks indirectly to consumers. Like I can't talk to a consumer, but a publication that speaks to consumers, I can speak through them. And it's sort of this different kind of snobbiness towards media. So the idea that you're going to go to where people are buying watches makes total sense for, for, you know, uh, for a Casio, for a citizen, you know, and Seiko is, I don't know, they're, they're, they're doing some soul searching right now, but I think they'll eventually figure out again that their strength is in being a watch brand of the people. I mean, look at the citizen name. It's literally, you know, supposed to be the every person watch, uh, for them to somehow not want to be at an every person event, uh, would be silly. Yeah. Well, we might have time for a guess the price of the Seiko later on the show. So let's look forward to that. Uh, David, did you pay much attention to the media coverage from the show? Have you ever been to any of these kind of shows? Unfortunately, no. I've been to JCK and Couture uh, a number of times, but not to these relatively smaller or newer ones uh, in the States. Mm-hmm. I would want to go, just just never been, never been. Well, we just need to get Ariel to take us next time now that he seems to be a mainstay of the show, getting invited back. Sounds good. Uh, I was in San Francisco <laughs> accidentally, but yes, you're all going to be part of the Obliged Watch entourage. We have to come as a, as a small military battalion. Yeah, I think it would be quite fun to walk in yeah. uh, all dressed up as something. A blog okay. to watch. A blog, something <laughs> a blog to watch. You're on uniforms, okay? <laughs> I'm on uniforms. One of the watches that seemed to stick its head up, I'm assuming it was at, was Nodus. Were Nodus at Windup? Yes. Yes. And Ripley, who had... Actually, was it Jake that had... Somebody had this watch at Geneva. And I'm realising it's Ripley that's written the review, but I thought it was Jake that had it on his wrist. So anyway... We reviewed the hands-on with the Nodus Unity Ceramic Bezel Watch. And I think the big thing about this watch is that it's pink. And that seems to be getting all of the attention is, have they found a shade of pink that is widely acceptable to the masculine wrist? Did either of you gents get to have a look at this in the flesh when we were in Switzerland? Yeah, uh, I saw it. Well, not in Switzerland. I saw it at Windup, the Nodus. Yes, and so what did you think of it at uh, Windup? Was it getting this similar? I mean, it's a smaller watch. It's a smaller timepiece. It's not very large. I mean, every every individual has to ask themselves if a color is right for them. I can't be like, this is a manly pink. Pink is hard to pull off in a watch. It can be done, and the way I think it needs to be done is the watch overall needs to be very masculine, but there needs to be certain colors on it which are pink. If the watch is not overtly masculine in 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 shape in other respects then it's really hard to pull off pink. And you're right, certain shades are more feminine than, than maybe others. I think with the notice is, you know, exactly what I said to them is, you know, make these in larger sizes so that other guys will like it as well. And, you know, th- that seemed to make sense. They're, they're, they're definitely going for a women's watch. They don't want to call a women's watch. I think that's what unisex tends to mean these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I, and I think it's successful uh, as that. Um, but again, I think that we're seeing a lot of color experimentation and not all pink is, is great equal, not all blue, not all green, not all red. And people are starting to realize that slight changes in hue can make huge differences in, in, in appeal and demand. Yeah, I wonder whether this shade will actually work on a larger size, which I agree with you. For me, it's too small. Uh, but I wonder whether in a weird way it just becomes too pink if there's more real estate on a 40 or a 42 mil watch i think this is something like is this 37 this one or yeah is it it's something like it? that i mean look it's it's you know it, it's a smaller size for them you know they 
they release it, and there's obviously some people are interested in that. It looks good on... I mean, look, it's just about anatomy. There's some people, you see this watch on them, you're like, that looks perfect. And then, you know, someone like yourself will put it on and be like, that it looks small and, and it is uh, there's no, there's no perfect watch dial color there's no perfect size there's just those that work better for you and the only way you can know that is by just trying it on yourself yeah it's a 36.5 mil uh david what do we think of notice and this watch in particular i just wish it had mismatched hour and minute hands uh, that would spice things up a little bit but otherwise i like it and i like pink watches I, i've never had one but i you know i could see myself wearing one of these maybe not this one but a pink watch Great stuff. And I assume Nodus was a particularly popular brand at the Watch Fair Ariel. Was it getting a lot of attention in general? It, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, the way it was set up, there was two stories. And uh, for the most part, brands had similar sized booths and people were sort of walking around. So I wouldn't say that, you know, one brand was getting special attention. Uh, it was equal crowd. I, I think that Nodus, like others, are these brands that have these, you know, nice mixture of price point and, you know, clean design and it appeals to people the notices of the world the challenges them deciding they want to keep going with it because they have to figure out exactly what they want to keep making and what the brand wants to be i think of sort of them similar to helios which has been around but has not grown much in size at all i think we have some content of one of their new watches which is about to publish as well so good brands but never expect for them to get to very high production volumes and when they, if they do then they fundamentally change as a brand so you know get them while they're cool and if they're still doing cool stuff uh, five years from now uh, consider us all very fortunate great stuff so check out uh, ripley's article at blog to watch.com 2023 marks 25 years of Urwork, a brand from Baumgartner and fry with the ambition to challenge otter lingerie with new ideas and modern technologies making art that tells time. 2011 brought the brand's first pocket watch, or Zeit device, the UR1001, allowing our work more space for horological creativity. Not only does this feature a new calendar system using the satellite complication, but under the panel on the back of the timepiece there is a 5-year oil change indicator showing when a service is due, as well as a 100-year indicator and a 1,000-year indicator registering the total running time of the movement. For more, search for Urwork at blogtowatch.com or follow at Urwork Geneva on Instagram. We had some breaking news this week. We saw him wandering the halls at Watches and Wonders, and that was Davide Sharato. He was announced not that long ago as the CEO saviour of HYT. That didn't last terribly long for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure, but he has now been announced as the CEO of Bremont. What do we think this says about Bremont? Is this a good move? Uh hopeful move a desperate <laughs> move what's davide obviously comes with a reputation of you know producing things that sell you know a panerai tudor mont blanc the first thing that comes to mind is that this is probably the best fit he's been at since tudor he loves british things and design he's not he's italian himself but he just he's he's an anglophile from british fashion to british cars he has a penchant for sort of this vintage tool aesthetic um if you think of the things he likes and the way he carries himself it it's it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like he, he, he seems like a fan of the brand. It's interesting that he's taking over as a management position versus a creative position. Uh, he is a designer himself. So 
the last time he was in a uh, a management role at HYT, you're correct. It didn't last that long. Uh, I don't know all the details myself, so I can't say why. And Bramont is a company that certain people last a long time, and to a degree, there's high turn turnover. It's not like they lost a CEO. I was under the impression that um, the English brothers were still more or less in that position. So it's kind of news to me uh, that they would be stepping aside to the bit. Uh, or, or delegating in a way that, that I'm not entirely familiar with. So I think that in terms of championing the brand, yeah, Davide uh, Charado is, 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 you know, is, is a, a good choice, better than others. But as of right now, I'm not really sure what his mandate is. And I think none of us really understand the, the, the context around his hire. Yeah, David, uh, your namesake, Davide, uh, as Ariel pointed out, was well-known for kind of the vintage aesthetic that came through from Tudor, Mont Blancs, you know, going back into the history. How do you think that plays with a brand as a CEO that has no extensive history? Yeah, I think Bremen has done pretty well at taking when it came to uh, taking inspiration from the past, whether those were past planes or ships or, or, or institutions in Britain or whatever else. I think, you know, they have a vast pool of inspiration to um, to just uh, reach into. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the WDA will find at least some of those that will work very well uh, for Bramon. And yeah, some of those were a little bit cheesy. Some others were very cool and very well made and, and uh, you know, charming. So we will see. But I, I, I'm not worried for them and their <laughs> lack of um, you know, extensive history. I'm sure they will find a way to make uh, cool call-ups. So do we think this is just going to be the return of more Bremen watches with bits of history well, uh, sitting inside them? The, the, the problem is that that's relatively easy to do. That That's my gripe. Uh, that's that's what my problem is with vintage watches, just, just taking something that existed before and retuning it a little bit with more or less success. Uh, I would love for Bremen to refocus themselves a little bit or reintroduce some of those Martin Baker watches, you know, the ejection seat company that we actually visited at the time. And that was super cool. And Aviation and Bremen go together. And it's also a British company and one of the best actually at producing ejection seats for all kinds of aircraft. So, um, and they have saved several thousands of lives and it's a very cool association and a highly technical company and I respect that and I think it's important for all of these brands or as many of these brands to have at least one or, one or two technical collections like Breitling with the uh, professional line and, and specifically the emergency and stuff like that you know I think it's not supposed to be all cheesy and vintage and inspired there should be at least some sort of a technical um, association as well. I want to add one more thing here. Davide, as a creative director, is really good at creating uh, certain collections and consolidating design. And as David was saying, what he did, I, you know, I was sort of reminded that some of the best designs from from Bramont, at least to my knowledge, are somewhat in the past, not too recent. A lot of the recent stuff, uh, good themes, good stories, but I'm not seeing a lot of originality. There seems to be a certain rehashing of things that they designed a while ago, and some of the new things don't seem as inspired uh, to me. So if, if Davide can come aboard and refocus the aesthetic part of the brand to doing what I, I, I know they're able to do, then it can help them get their uh, models back to these pillars, right? Because they sort of lost some of the pillars or it's become a little bit wishy-washy. Uh, what exactly each, each, each collection is supposed to be under? So 
I think that's something that he can do particularly well, and I think that it can marry some of the the, the wonderful design language that they're capable of with the good stories and technical stuff uh, that we've been mentioning that 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 Bremont is good at. Yeah, it feels to me like Bremont have somewhat gone off the boil. I'm not sure that the supernova has really worked for them the way that they thought it might. Getting into the you know, integrated bracelet. You compare that, you compare the launch of the Supernova to what Christopher Ward have done in the last week. And okay, different price points, but you can see how one has really caught the attention of people and is being compared to watches that are 10 times the price. Whereas the Bremen still seems to be sitting in the isn't this rather expensive for a watch category? Whereas, as David says, going back to the Martin Baker stuff, the Boeing stuff, the triptych cases, I think is just where Bremen shines. They're, I mean, they are incredibly high quality watches in terms of how they're put together and made. There's debates over the kind of movements they're using, perhaps, and the price they're charging for them. But the actual stuff that surrounds the movement is really well done. In, in my experience, uh, from having one of these Boeing watches in the hand. So it will be interesting to see where Davide goes first. Where do you think would be, if you were taking over as CEO Ariel of Bremen, what would be the first thing you'd be asking your new minions to look at? I would, you know, do the cliche thing, but take it back to the first for years of the brand. What were the first model collections they came out with? What were those those particular, you know, collaborations that put them on the map? David mentioned Martin Baker, which is a, is a perfect example. And how can they make those good again, right? right. The Supermarine, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, the debut collection, I think, has not been topped. They've tried to make them bigger. They've tried to change the dials. They've tried to make them smaller. They've tried to add complications. And and to me, nothing has, has outdone the very first one. So I would try to make good versions of all their classics and then build upon that. So a lot of it is taking the things they, they have right now and tweaking them to, to consolidate it and make good collections. The Alt-1P is an amazing collection. doesn't really have any problems behind it, but it's it's really an aging platform. There's not too much which has done other than some dial tweaks and things like that. And, and people demand some changes. I mean, you have a lot of these luxury brands that are using some of the same cases and architecture for 10, 15 years now. And I just think consumers similar to cars are going to expect a generational change more often than that. So I think there's just a lot of areas where they can change things. Now they have limited budgets and I know that they're, you know, they're they're trying to maintain a high level uh, of of enterprise value, so they can't spend too much. So it's really difficult to know what Davide will choose to do. But I guess that's why the English uh, brothers hired him because they feel that he um, has an ability to do something like that. And this is a very different challenge uh, from HYT. So whatever did or didn't, you know, go well at HYT, I'm not sure if that's going to be particular telling uh, for wh- what's going to happen at Bremont, provided the the financial powers that be let him spend some money, which he yeah. needs to do to do his job. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether what Davide's attitude is to, you know, Bremont spent a number of years in the wilderness trying to build their own movement, eventually to pivot to the movement suppliers from Orage. It'll be interesting to see what Davide's kind of theory as to whether it's important to have your own identifiable watch movement versus just using Solita or ETA or, or whatever. Interesting to see what he brings to that particular debate. 
David, you have written a comparison between the previous version of the Rolex Steel Daytona, the 116500LN, and the new one just released at Watch and Wonders. If you had however many tens of thousands of imaginary dollars, which one would you buy? Well, I would still go for the old one, and uh, it's that's what this article is basically about. I mean, most of it is... Uh, very objective um, comparison and then the final chapter is a subjective um, take on all these changes and basically in a nutshell what I would say is that in my opinion if the order of these watches and the, the way that they were launched was reversed and the previous one came after this new one <laughs> I think we would be saying that they have refined it <laughs> and right. it does not apply in the way that now they, uh, they have done it. You know, the lugs are thicker and the whole watch is a, whole, is a millimeter larger and it looks chunkier and bigger and a little bit more ungainly. Um, the, the, the monoblock Cerachrome bezel is now framed, or, you know, it has a metal frame around it. So you lose this sensation of having a chunky monoblock um, bezel and it looks like an insert now and just the proportions all over are just kind of wrong uh, to my eyes at least so i don't think it's it, you know they've done something for the sake of doing it because they had to because it was the 60th anniversary of the daytona but i I'm, i don't think that it's it's an improved design it's a change to modify design but i see in the comments that many people pr uh, prefer the new one and you know so i i guess it's um uh you know the waiting lists are not getting any shorter that's for sure so, I mean, one of the most identifiable things, I think, is the change to the chronograph surrounds. The black surrounds have gone from being which way around? Thicker to thinner or thinner to thicker? Uh, they were thicker and now they are thinner. So they are hollowed out on the, on the, um, on the inside a little bit. And I think that's the most noticeable thing when you get close to it. The proportions, I think, that that does, it just makes it seem... It actually makes me feel that the watch looks like it's more got, you know, Munchie's scream on the face. Hmm. It, it frames these chronograph counters in a very different way, despite the fact that it's probably like, I don't know, is it half a millimetre difference? I don't even know how big a difference it would be between the two, but it just shows you how big a change in what something looks like such a, a small detail can make because it's yeah. absolutely minuscule but it really does just it makes the watch look like an uncanny thing hmm. in a weird way difficult to explain without seeing it have a look at the article david's got a kind of has put together a a, a kind of exchanged shot of the face that flips between the two so you can obviously gif. see the differences yeah or jiff or how, however you want to call it <laughs> yeah exactly and you know it's, it's interesting because the dial size and the dial opening remains the same size but they did have to modify a little bit um around the dials proportions because the case got uh, so much bigger and the lugs are so much wider and longer so you can't have the tiny little just uh, dial in the middle of it when, when you have a bigger case and when I first saw it and I remember we were having our meeting with, with Rolex and they asked you know our, our impressions on this and I told them you know my first impression was that of a chronograph from like 10 or 15 years ago when the big watch trend was at its peak and movements were still small and designers had right. to find all kinds of ways to make this squished together little sub dials look somehow bigger in a chunky case so that it, so, so that it would fill 
the whole thing up a little bit better. And strangely, and probably um, I'm unconscious of this trend from 10 years ago, Rolex designers appear to have um, resorted to the exact same solution, which is, oh, just make them thinner and make the subdias look bigger, even though they are actually not, because obviously they, they can't be that much bigger, because otherwise they will start to touch in the middle. <laughs> so you can't, and you can't have oval shaped um, something else either. So anyway, it's just changed proportions, and I don't think it's for the better, that's all. And although it's only the platinum one that has the clear case back, do you think that uh, we will see this working its way down to the next generations of Daytonas? Is this the sort of thing, well, we know this is the sort of thing that Rolex do, they release something different in their most precious metal versions, mm. and then a year or two later, they reach down. And, and my impression of Rolex is they're speeding things up, so you got the titanium deeper sea or whatever it's called, and then within a few months you got the titanium sea dweller. Uh, sorry, uh, yacht, yacht master, the titanium yeah. yacht master. Do you think we will see the clear case back coming faster into the rest of the range, or yeah. is is that just a one and done? Definitely, I've heard about some supply chain issues. Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> on on titanium um from somewhere and uh, apparently it's not going to be um in the stores not not even for, you know for many many months maybe probably really? even longer the Yakmaster forty two will be in extremely low supply because Rex is still figuring stuff out with titanium which is kind of funny to hear but at least that's what I heard um I mean do you think they just don't want to be seen to be going next door to Tudor and asking them how they do it on the Pelagos <laughs> technically I mean, their own employees yeah no exactly <laughs> so can, can we just transfer the people that are cutting this out at Tudor isn't that a funny dynamic like no we have to do it differently we, we just have to we, we experimented it we know we can do it so now we have to do it differently because we are charging four times as much literally uh because it's like a 14 14 thousand 16 thousand dollar watch there yeah it's uh it's it's you know it's way too expensive i think so yeah to answer your question see-through case books are definitely coming because uh, rolex has pretty dubbed the 4130 um it's a 4130 one now um, with uh, some, you know, uncharacteristic for Rolex, um, really pretty movement finishing, you know, some Côte de Genève, open work rotor, even some fake gold chatons uh, that frame the jewels. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty movement now. And there, there would be, um, it would make sense to show it. And also the sky dweller movement uh, under the radar, that's been um, updated to, to the 9002 movement if I remember correctly, and that also has these new movement finishings. So, uh, you know, it's happening, but we will see whether uh, that will uh, be complemented with um, uh, see-through case bags. But, I, you know, I think I think there's a good chance that we will see more of these in the next few years. And there's, there's not a sky dweller with a clear case back, though that would seem to make sense because it's presumably quite a complicated movement if you were able to look through the back of it. Well, most of it will be on the dial side, uh, you know. So it's not, it's true. <laughs> yeah, but but still, it's 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 a good looking movement. And uh, also, I just wanted to add that you, you guys can totally buy an aftermarket see through case back uh, online from Germany or wherever for like two hundred euros, and then you can put it on your watch. Just make sure you don't bring it in to the Rolex <laughs> service center with that on because it voids your warranty or whatever. They can refuse to service it. So make sure you switch it back. But there are some nice, decent quality case bags, three see-through case bags that you can buy and uh -huh. have a watchmaker, but not Rolex watchmaker, put it on your watch. 
So if you want to buy your Rolex slowly in parts, then you can start by just buying the case back and then see how long it takes to actually get the watch to match. If you missed last week's Spending Time podcast, then this is what you missed. Naming watches is always uh, both the greatest fun and the greatest difficulty. The Dodecagon spoke to us. The 12 just sort of leapt off the page in, in a sense. And and it's also got a kind of a secret society twist to it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you two can become a disciple. It's a distinctive name and it's, uh, again, people seem to like it. it the Dodecagon won in the end and um, this seemed, uh, just seemed right. So it's the 12 in stainless steel and the 12 TI in they're running around saying Kevin all the time. <laughs> Is it Kevin? Who, who's and like Papa and <laughs> things like that? Yeah, please do more impressions of minions. I just feel like that's I don't the know much. Oh my but... days! So this was actually reviewed by Ariel. So this is the, the sort of beginning of how you were heartbroken by Ariel. Uh huh. Yeah. But I have decided to go with this. You know what sold it for me? One, it's yellow, so it can be in the list. And also, you can get a strap that's like a denim strap. It feels like they're talking to me. <laughs> it's so cute. Does it make noises though? It feels like in order to be a minion watch, someone should be able to press a button and someone goes, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, what's the point in having a minion anything if it's not making noises? Yeah, it should be like a Build-A-Bear situation where you've got like, you just, like it has a button that says like, push me and then it makes noises. Uh-huh. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Like, I just want a minion in my life as a friend. Doesn't everybody. And this is really the only way that I can get one. And I could just, like, look down. Well, I was going to say, as long as it's not the one that likes trying to push you off things. Or... <laughs> <laughs> they only fight with each other. Or if you're, like, an evil person, and I wouldn't be evil. I would be their friend. I would be their guru. Oh. And instead of going to steal the moon, we're going to steal the moon's watch. So good. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, David, you're going on about the films you want to be part of. I'm making my own Despicable Me. What's new is we have one brand that's participating with a massive, massive exhibition and they're first time participants. So that would be something new and it's the first time that Dubai Watch Week gives that size of space to any brand. So if you don't want to miss out again, then subscribe to the Spending Time podcast now on your favourite podcast player. Now, one other brand that they could go to to learn how to deal with titanium we dealt with it a little bit last time, but it's now out and about, is Christopher Ward and the titanium version of their new The 12. Ariel, now that it's all out and about, what's your thoughts on this watch, now that you can actually describe it properly? Yeah, so The 12 is uh, a really a really nice creation from Christopher Ward. I don't think that anyone knew exactly what they would do. Obviously, it has similarities to other things on the market, um, there's a steel version and a titanium version, which I think is the most confusing thing because they're actually different cases with different movements. The titanium one is thinner and has a better movement. So it's hard for me to say, look at the steel one as an enthusiast when the titanium one exists. I think that's really the one to look at. The steel one seems to be maybe for the price point or for a different audience that may not know the difference between titanium and steel. But again, the titanium one, that's a sweet spot. I've been wearing it and I like it. I think the, the dials are, are nice looking. No one's going to love everything. Can You can accuse uh, Christopher Ward of not being that original in certain departments. But again, quality, price point, and comfort, uh, it scores high in all those areas. Good stuff. David, what was your first impressions now that you've seen this take to the internet? Well, it does look remarkably like, <laughs> like the trip bag, but 
you know, it's it's not like Chapek invented this thing. It's it, they've yeah. re- <laughs> they've had inspirations from here and there. It's a big segment. It's basically now everyone launching to their coupes. You know, it's it's the style. It's or, or SUVs or whatever you want to call them. It's it's you know not one single brand or four or five can own this look. And sure, sooner or later, uh, there are you know bound to be some overlaps. And you know, I, I, I should say. Your quality and your design should not be that easy to, to copy. And I'm not saying this to Chapek. I'm also saying this to, to all others. So there's competition, and that's good for us. It's good to see. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing this hands-on. Excellent. Well, go and check out the article online. And there's an interview with Mike France there as well. Okay, we're not going to review the watch. We're just going to review the price. Uh, Seiko unveils the Preza's Sharp Edge Series SPB 415 and SPB 417. This is a presage case. It has uh, the 6R5J automatic movement, 72 power hours of power reserve, steel. RL, guess the price of the Seiko. I remember when these like were basically under a thousand, and I do not think this is under a thousand. This is not their fanciest movement. What's the dial again? The dial is a kind of open worked, open heart uh, dial. A bit of kind of it looks actually a bit like the Christopher War dial. Uh, you know, this Terry Pratchett said all ideas just have a have a way of working out at the same time in different locations. So I don't yeah. know. I... from Mario. I have like a formula. It's like a certain number in my mind, like plus a certain percentage. (laughs) (laughs) David, give us a price before we go. Uh, $8.95. I will be kind to say for the sign. $8.95. Like under $1,000? Like $895? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. All right. That'd be great. Well, yeah, the answer the answer just to disappoint everybody is $1,200. So Adam's oh. disappointed because it's not expensive enough. And Dave's disappointed because it's too expensive. No, so it's eight ninety five plus inflation. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> 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 Great stuff. Well, go and check out the article on that watch if the new stuff from Seiko interests you. That's it from us this week. David, where can people find you on the internet? It's abtw underscore David on Instagram and on the blogtowatch.com. Excellent. And Ariel, where can people find you on the internet? Ariel to watch on Instagram and all my stuff on the blogtowatch.com. Excellent. And you can find me at Rick TikTok and you can email the show podcast at a blogtowatch.com. We'd really like to hear from you. So send us in a voicemail, send us in some thoughts and we'll give it some coverage in the show. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Bye-bye.